You're listening to audio recorded at Mount Air First Christian Church. For more resources or to contact us, look us up at www.mountairfirstchristianchurch.org. Colossians chapter 4, verses 7 through 18. Tychicus will tell you all about my activities. He is a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow servant in the Lord. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, that you may know how we are and that he may encourage your hearts. And with him, Onesimus, our faithful and beloved brother, who is one of you. They will tell you of everything that has taken place here. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you, and Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, concerning whom you have received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. And Jesus, who is called Justice. These are the only men of the circumcision among my fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have been a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you and for those in Laodicea and in Hierapolis. Luke, the beloved physician, greets you, as does Demas." Give my greetings to the brothers at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. And when this letter has been read among you, have it also read in the church of the Laodiceans and see that you also read the letter from Laodicea. And say to Archippus or Archippus, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Grass withers and the flower fades. The word of our God stands forever. So this morning we are finishing up uh, this epistle to the church at Colossae with Paul's final greetings. And Paul sends just very personal information at the end of this book. Greetings from fellow laborers of his own to the church. Those who are bringing the letter to the Colossians. Those who remain in prison with them. And then he sends salutations or greetings to those that he knows who are among the Colossians. What, what are we to make of sections like this in our Bible. I mean, it's, a, it's an interesting section, really, isn't it? I mean, and I typically, I don't know, as you all think, when you get up on a Sunday morning, I hope we cover the final greetings of some epistle and all these random details about these figures, these personal greetings. It isn't always the most um, exciting. There's no, like, incredible theological understanding that we're going to come to, possibly, in a section like this. But one of the things that we ought to know is, is just to be fascinated with what kind of book the Bible is. What God has done in giving us his word. The Bible is a fascinating book. God and his desire to communicate with us through these chosen writers, he allows for sections like this to be preserved. He doesn't 
He doesn't just write a systematic theology, which you can go by a systematic theology that systematizes all the doctrines and whatever, and you can read it, and they're profitable, and they're beneficial. That isn't what God does. He, he, he allows the personality of the human authors to, to come through, and he allows sections like this to, to be in our inspired scripture. If you remember from our What We Believe uh, doctrinal uh, series, we confess that every word of God is inspired, infallible, inerrant. It is the word of God, that God has spoke through chosen men these words that we can be sure when we read our Bible, we are reading the very words of God. And yet, and yet, God allows the personality of the human author to come through so that we have sections like this. In a sense, I think just the existence of passages like this in the epistles can be a great comfort on the road of following Christ. Jesus, we see in this section, is served, the church is served by real people living their lives and they're, they're small, maybe even not even noticeable on a grand scale. They're small investments in the body of Christ. That is what the church is built upon. That is what the church grows upon. It isn't these grand theological, I mean, it is. It is these grand theological ideas, the deity of Christ, the Trinity, the person and work of Christ, the nature of God, the creator, all of these high doctrines. It is that, but it isn't just that. We don't live, the church is not just an academy. The church is filled with real people going through real life seeking to serve Jesus in very real, simple way. People with, people with real struggles, people with real trials and real joys and real concerns. How is that an encouragement? Well, I think that means that even people in middle-of-nowhere America can be used for the eternal purposes of God. God uses all kinds of people. They aren't shoved to the side as though they don't really matter. They're intricate to the movement of God among his people across the globe. God uses real people. And this, so that means, uh, hopefully pinch yourself, we're not in a dream, you're a real person here today. And so sections like this exist, I think, in one sense to comfort us and encourage us and embolden us in the reality that as me too, a real person, can be used to further Jesus' work in the world. There's, it's fascinating, and I, to, I commend to you the, the practice of just looking up all of these figures. There's 11, I think, guys listed out, one woman. There's 11 individuals listed out here in this section. And it is fascinating to see all the other various places they are referenced in Scripture. But we're not going to take all of our time this morning doing that. It's, it's a fun practice. And like I said, I commend it to you. But to just quickly go through some of them, Tychicus, Ty, this first one who is mentioned here, he's the guy who's bringing the letter with him. So the way that you traveled, the Roman roads were going well, but typically if you want a letter to be sure to make it somewhere, you put it in someone's hand and they carried it to them. And so Paul in prison, likely Rome, but somewhere, he's in, he's in jail right now. He sends Tychicus with this letter to them and he describes him as a beloved brother, a faithful minister, Fellow servant in the Lord. That is astonishing. Why, why is that astonishing? Well, Paul 
is the Apostle Paul who got knocked off his horse by Jesus, radically saved on the road to Damascus. You know, he's blind. Ananias comes, prays for him. His eyes are open. And he goes and he's declaring the gospel, preaching, planting churches, getting stoned, left for dead, shipwrecked, all sorts of punishment, getting the, the, the 39 lashes, the 40 lashes minus one, suffering for Christ. He's this huge pillar, writes over, you know, two-thirds of our New Testament books, I mean, Paul is, is huge. And Tychicus, we know, we got his name like referenced twice. <laughs> twice. I mean, he's in the book of Acts here at the end of a few other letters, more than twice, but it's, it's very few times. But what does Paul call him? Fellow servant in the Lord. Paul doesn't have the hierarchy of, well, it's a, you know, he's kind of, he's like, you know, I, he, I let him hang around me. He calls him fellow servant. He calls him fellow servant. This plain old dude, and he calls him fe fellow servant. It's encouraging, I think, to hear of such people in the life of Paul. Tychicus appears on the scene, Acts chapter 20. His name shows up. He's, he's, uh, he's from the region of Asia. And we don't, not, don't think of our modern terms. That's like where Turkey, uh, that's this Asian district, uh, Asia Minor. He's in this region that Paul is in, planting churches, that Tychicus comes on the scene. And he's sent by Paul on many different missions. He goes to the Ephesians. Paul says he's going to send him to Crete, possibly. And so he's sending Paul, sending Tychicus around. So Tychicus is in there. He's interesting. Onesimus, I'm not going to talk about much today because we're going to he's who we're going to talk about next week. He is the runaway slave from Philemon, which we're going to read. We're going to study the book, the whole book of Philemon in one Sunday. So be, get, bring a snack. Just, it's a short book. We're going to study Philemon. So that's, that's who this Onesimus is. And it's a it's very interesting story on his, his reality and his life and the conversion of Onesimus. He's in there. Aristarchus. So those are the two guys who are going back to the church, which is important to remember. This runaway slave from Philemon who's in the Colossian church, Onesimus is going back to, the, to where he ran away from, along with Tychicus to Colossae. Now, those two guys are the ones that have been sent. Now, here's a list of six guys, I believe, who, uh, who are in jail with Jesus. Aristarchus, Mark, Jesus, who is called Justice, Epaphras, Luke, and Demas. Six guys who are there in jail with Paul. Aristarchus, the first one. Mark is an interesting guy. He's the cousin of Barnabas, he says. Barnabas is maybe on his way to Colossae. We don't know. But Mark is the guy who deserts Paul. We, we call it a desertion. It sounds like it. In Acts chapter 13, verse 13. It's a 13, 13, so it's easy to remember. But John Mark, is his, well, his Greek and his Jewish name, John Mark, he abandons Paul and Barnabas while they're out on their work. He leaves them, goes back to Jerusalem. Paul and Barnabas continue on in their, their work. They come back to the Jerusalem council. They're going to get sent out again, and Barnabas wants to take John with them again. Mark, John Mark, with him. And Paul's like, well, he abandoned us last time. This is my conjecture, but I think it's clear from the text. I'm not taking Mark this time. And Barnabas is like, no, he's my cousin. We're taking Mark. So instead, Barnabas and Mark go off, and Paul takes Silas. And so there's this great division over Mark that evidently at some point something happens in the life of Mark that he and Paul are reunited. 
And Mark is there in jail with them. They become brothers. And, and later on in another epistle, Paul commends and talks about the, the ministry that Mark has had to him. Mark is there in jail with him. Jesus, who is called Justice, that's all we know about him. Jesus, who is called Justice. Epaphras was mentioned earlier in this, in this um, book as the guy who brings the gospel to them. He is the, or that's, that's in Philippi. I should have looked that up now that I'm saying that off the top of my head. Now I'm all nervous about it. But Epaphras is mentioned earlier. He is, the, he is from the, the Colossian region there, the church in Laodicea and Hierapolis. And he's planting this church and Paul commends him because he's continuing in prayer for the Colossian church. He's working hard. In Paul's mind, there isn't like hard work and prayer. <laughs> prayer is the hard work. Of, of ministering to the church, Epaphras, struggling on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand firm, stand mature and fully assured. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard for you, for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis, certainly planting the church, but he's, he's struggling and suffering in prayer for them. Paul seems to think the hard work of praying for them is notable, commendable. They're all in jail with him. Luke Yes, the Luke, the beloved physician that wrote the gospel of Luke, is there in jail with them, as is Demas. Demas is a tragedy. It doesn't say much about Demas, but you can look in um, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 10, where Paul says that Demas eventually does desert Paul, and he walks away from the faith. He's, he's suffering with Paul in jail there in this, when he writes this letter, and eventually Demas abandons the faith. Not much is said about Demas in this passage, and maybe that's why there's no commending of him. He's just recognizing Demas is there among them. So these are all the six individuals who are with him. Nympha is evidently a, a female that has a church in her house. The, the church at Colossae would have been a more of a general term, probably many house churches, probably in the region of Colossae, and Nympha would have been one of them that evidently owned a large house. We see this a lot in Scripture. You talk about um, uh, the seller of purple in Philippians chapter 16, and her name is Lydia, the seller of purple. She's a very influential woman in, in the early church. Owned, was a wealthy woman, owned a large property. People could gather in and they could have church. Evidently, evidently Nympha is one of those ladies. And also Ar Archippus. And I love this statement to Archippus. This is verse 17 already. He says, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. What is the ministry calling for each one of us? I mean, if you were to look at your life, what, what are the things, when it, when it comes to how Paul is going to encourage you or how, how you could be encouraged, is what, what does that look like? What does your ministry look like? And it will look countless different ways across the spectrum here of what your ministry would look like. But I think it's interesting that Paul, in talking to Archippus, Archippus, we don't know what his ministry really is, we don't know any specifics to what Paul is referring to. He simply says this, fulfill your ministry. He doesn't say make your ministry giantly successful. He doesn't say go out and, and, and be successful. At it. He doesn't say go be popular for it. He doesn't say make all the big tours with your ministry. The call is simply this, be faithful in the ministry that I have for you. 
Don't try to be doing somebody else's ministry. Don't go out and try to be Timothy who's at Ephesus. Don't go out and try to be whoever. You fulfill your ministry. Fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. The call is simply this. Be faithful with what is put in front of you. Now that's a real encouragement. That's a real encouragement to be faithful in the work that God has done for you. Real and regular people advance the gospel. Real and regular people advance the gospel. I did have that point up there. I forgot about my points. <laughs> Real and regular people advance the gospel. And there is evidence of those individuals advancing the gospel. And they do it by simply being faithful to fulfill the ministry that has been given to them. Not trying to make it big in some other arena. What's in front of you that God has called you to be faithful for, faithful to fulfill that ministry? So we see that's, that's the individual list. But big picture, I think this passage is just a call to recognize the essential corporate nature of the body of Christ. The essential corporate nature of the body of Christ. We in America, I think we, we think we're better than Paul, which is an extremely arrogant thing to say, and I know he's not, you don't want to, but think of, think of who Paul is and all that he accomplished for God. And yet, I think that many of us in, in the American church think ourselves better than Paul. Look at the community that Paul puts around himself. People he has in jail with him, people that he has, people that he's encouraging, the people that encourage him. Look at all this community that is around him. But so many of us are convinced with our American individualism, this Kool-Aid that we grow up drinking, the supremacy of the individual, not the supremacy of Christ, the supremacy of the individual. We grow up drinking that Kool-Aid that we begin to think that's what's actually served at Christ Church. Individualism. You. We're so sold on the idea of extreme expressive individualism. In the church, it's believed that it is perfectly acceptable that your walk with Jesus is just a personal issue. In our individualistic mindset, you can be a follower of Jesus, yet be totally isolated and cut off from any other follower of Jesus in any real meaningful fashion. That's not the Christianity from the pages of the New Testament. It is not Jesus and me and, and we're off and being free. That was a terrible poem. I don't know. It's not just me and Jesus and no more. The, the church has always been the essential nature of the community. That's not the Christianity from the pages of the New Testament. That's like calling yourself a baseball player because you hit acorns in your backyard with a stick. I'm a baseball player. Do, would you have any idea, if you have a stick and acorns, everyone gets how that works, but do you have any idea, does that make you a baseball player? Are you going to succeed out on a ball field if you get thrown in, if you, just because you hit acorns with a stick? Or it's like calling yourself a football player because you put on a jersey and throw a football around in your, back, in your backyard. Does that make you a football player? No. And actually, if you can convince yourself that it makes you a football player, you know what that is? That's dangerous. That's dangerous. If you allow yourself to be convinced that if you put on a jersey and carry a football, it makes you a football player. If you go out into the field with all the guys who actually know how to play football with the football in your arms, it's going to get dangerous real fast. Because you fooled yourself into thinking something that was not true. 
Now, that's dangerous, but let me be honest, it's even more dangerous when it comes to Jesus. Because when it comes to your engagement with the gospel, you are fooling around with things of eternal consequence. It isn't just you might end up with a broken leg. It is that you have a soul deserving of the justice and the wrath of God. And if you fool yourself that if you put on the Jesus jersey and go march off with Jesus and do your own thing, all's good, it can end up in serious condemnation in a place called hell of suffering of eternal wrath. That's serious, far more serious than tricking yourself with a football jersey. To say that you love the light and walk in the truth but have no involvement with God's people is to lie to yourself. Quote from a book I was reading this week I just thought was super good. I want to share it with you. About the idea of, of individualistic Christianity. Michael Green says this in his book. It's, it's an old book, 1990, which I guess I say is old, but I was, even I was in uh, junior high at that point, 1990. But anyway, uh, he says this. Isn't that sad how those things become old? It's just the 90s. That's not that old. He says this. You may come to Christ on your own, but as soon as you do, you find yourself among a whole family of brothers and sisters. It has been well said that a Christian, which does not begin with the individual, does not begin. A Christianity that does not begin with the individual does not begin. It is a personal faith. The Christianity has to begin with the individual. You are personally accountable for trusting Jesus Christ, repenting of your sins. You can't ride on anybody else's coattails. Individually, it's on you. It's been well said, Christianity, which does not begin with the individual, does not begin. But a Christianity that ends with the individual, ends. A Christianity that ends with the individual, ends. It's not really even Christianity. It is not even really Christianity. So as we think on this text this morning, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you. When you look at this list, do you have anyone who is an encouragement to you in your walk with Christ is there, are there any individuals that you could call up and pray with who would labor in prayer for you? Paul's asking them for prayer. Do you have people in your community that you could call up at any moment that are laboring in prayer for you who would talk about the Bible with you? Is there anyone that you could say to them, you encourage me in my walk with Jesus? Is there anyone that you have that level of camaraderie with, that level of community with, Paul himself didn't think of himself as so superior that somehow he was above needing the benefit of the churches that he was planting. He needed their support. Why do we think we don't? Do we have those that we are leaning on to support us? Do we have those people that we are leaning upon? Paul was convinced he needed them. Do we think we are better than Paul? that we don't need people to lean upon to encourage us in our walk with Jesus. So do you have anyone who is that for you? And are you working to, you need that support, we need that support, I need that support, I'm looking for it. Where do we find that encouragement? My second question is this, are you that person for anybody else? Do you have anyone you're leaning upon and are you someone that anyone can actually lean upon? Are you that person for anyone else? Is there anyone for whom it wouldn't be an awkward comment 
If they told you that you're an encouragement to them in their walk with Jesus, can you imagine? You're like, I don't know. What did I do? <laughs> Is there anyone that would say that to you? That you're an encouragement to me in my walk with Jesus. How do you answer those two questions? Because here's the reality. To walk with Jesus is to always be engaging with people in both of those categories. Those who you're leaning upon to support you and those who you're supporting and, and calling them to lean upon you. The, recip- the, the, the revolution of that, the Christian church going back and forth. We are put into the body of Christ to receive encouragement and to give encouragement for our fellow brothers and sisters in their walk with Jesus. Do you have people that fit that category for you? Find them. Dare I say it, look around. Find them. Engage them to be the people who you can lean upon. And secondly, are you one of those people for them? Become them. Become them. Repent and become one. Seriously, the body of Christ is meant to function as a body, all parts working together for the good of the whole, with every part doing its unique and important role. If you're living under the worldview that you don't need others and that others don't need you, you actually have cast yourself in the role of God. You need nothing. No one, I I need nothing. It's rebellion and it's sin, and we should repent. But there is good news We can find forgiveness, and you can change that today. Back to our point on Archippus. Jesus is not asking any one of us to single-handedly revolutionize the world. It's kind of a silly, you know, change the world. It's always always real good for youth conferences. I used to go to a bunch of those. It was always change the world and all of these big, big ideas. It's always real, like, inspiring to try to pull people up. But it's crushing (laughs) because you can't change the world. (laughs) I mean, we're, we're just single or individual people in, in where we are in life with all sorts of circumstances. Jesus is not asking any one of us to single-handedly revolutionize the world. He's not piling up burden after burden upon our shoulders. He's asking us to believe in him, to trust him and to treasure him above all else and to be faithful with the simple tasks that he's put in front of us to be faithful with the simple task he's put in front of us. That may be as simple as leading your own family in their walk with Jesus. may not be some grand thing where you got some huge ministry out witnessing to the world. It might be right in your very own home that you're faithful to talk about the Bible, to, to pray together, sing songs to Jesus. That might be the ministry that you're just being called to be faithful to. It might be as simple as that. It might be as simple as engaging with God's people right here among us. This small group, you know, we could talk about how, how terrible it is on the one hand that when attendance goes down and you have these small numbers. You can look at it that way or you can look at, at, it, at it this way. What a great opportunity to build, build real meaningful friendships and relationships. You've just shrunk the pool of people that you have to try to figure out who to connect to. Connect. It's as simple as engaging. Are you faithful with a ministry that is right in front of you? Building friendships and support for yourself and for others within the community of God's people. So this morning, we're going to celebrate a simple act of trusting and treasuring Jesus. What's placed before us in communion is the life and work of Jesus Christ. If you can look at yourself, I can look at myself and know the many ways that I fail on this front that we can come and find forgiveness and renewal and refreshing. 
What's placed before us is the life and work of Jesus Christ. And when we celebrate the broken body and the shed blood of our Savior, we do not do it lightly. This is a call to trust Jesus as our Savior, our sovereign Lord, and our treasure above all else. Those who come to celebrate Christ's sacrifice, there's no greater love than Christ himself that then impels us to trust him. This is what he's calling. Trust trust him and engage in faithful service for what he has put. Fulfill the ministry that he's put in front of you. Let's pray. Father, this morning I, I just I ask that you would work in every individual's heart. It's, it's impossible for me, even with the size of this group, to address everything that's going on, every personal issue, every personal struggle, every personal disappointment, every personal joy, every encouragement. It's, it, but, but Father, you can. That's not impossible for you. And so right now, Holy Spirit, move in every heart. Open our eyes to see where we have slacked off on this, where we aren't trusting you, where we aren't treasuring you, where we aren't fulfilling the ministry that you've simply put in front of us. Father, I pray for conviction. For this reason, there is forgiveness. There is restoration. There is renewal. And it is in the blood of Jesus Christ that cleanses us from all of our sin. Restore this morning, restore to us the joy of our salvation and all that Christ has done for us as we seek to trust you and to fulfill what you've put in front of us, empowered by you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.